Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. One of my guests this hour, Karen Zebarth of Adel, Iowa, was working at home in April of 2019 when she received a text from a number she didn't recognize. It was a text that informed her that her adult son, Eric, and a co-worker had not returned from a hike in the San Bernardino Mountains. This is in Southern California. And that a search and rescue effort had started. So begins the account of five days that Karen and her son will never forget. And Karen's written a book about the experience. It's called Two Trails, a hiker's story of survival and his mother's story of hope. Uh, it has contributions written by her son, Eric Desplinter. Eric and Karen join us this hour. Karen, Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. And uh, Karen, you are joining us uh, from, uh, you're a resident of Adel uh, here in Iowa. You're joining us from Adel. And Eric, you're joining us from Ontario, California. Welcome to you. And I understand you're not too far from where all this took place, are you? Correct. We're just about a 30-minute drive away from uh, the trailhead, so Mm -hmm. not too far away. Well, what you both created here is is really exciting, a quick read with photos from the area, from the rescue operation. Karen, can I ask you to start uh, start us off here by starting the way you do in the book and, and having a text that no mother ever wants to receive. Uh, read us the text you received. Certainly. It was on April 7th of 2019 when I received the following text. It said, Is this Karen, Eric Desplinter's mother? Last night, he and a coworker did not return from a hike. Search and rescue efforts started around 10 p.m. and are continuing right now. The hike was from Ice House Canyon Trailhead to Cucamonga Peak. We last saw them at Ice House, Ice House Canyon Saddle, 3.5 miles from the trailhead. And then it goes on to list the telephone number of the officer that was in charge of the search and rescue efforts. Okay, Karen, what is what is going through your mind at this point? What what jumps out at you most about that text? Well, Im- immediately, it was very confusing to me because I thought it was a scam text, but I couldn't figure out how somebody could associate Eric's name with mine. Mm-hmm. And so I had to read it again. And then when I read Search and Rescue, I knew that something had to be terribly wrong. Um, so that was that was my startling moment. Right. This is a text that is in day two of Eric, your planned hike that went off um, into <laughs> an adventure that you never expected. Uh, let's go to you. This book is so well laid out and walking us through day by day what you, Eric, experienced during your hike and, and getting lost, unable to uh, get out of a canyon there in Southern California, and then Karen uh, walking us through the days as you experienced them as a, a very concerned mother with your other family members. Eric, Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what brought you to that particular mountain to hike on that April day in 2019. Sure. So I just, in general, really love getting out and hiking in the mountains. And uh, there's a, a small group of friends that uh, I would go out with hiking to various peaks um, uh, throughout the year. And 
on that day, uh, we had um, some snow up in the mountains still, um, left over from the winter. And that group decided to go out and uh, get out onto the snow and ice in preparation for a hike that we had planned a few months in the future out at Mount Whitney. Uh, so we were going to get all of our mountaineering gear out and, uh, go to a local, um, snow and ice hike. And, uh, there was about eight of us in the group and some of them decided not to bring, uh, their crampons and ice axe and, and other mountaineering gear. Uh, so they stopped at ice house, uh, saddle. Uh, which is about the point where the snow and ice started to get more serious uh, to where it wasn't safely to pass without the proper equipment. Um, and ultimately, it was just Gabrielle and I that uh, attempted to summit uh, Cucamonga Peak. Um, and, and this is a peak. Yeah, this is just to be clear yeah, for those who are uh, familiar with mountain climbing. This is a peak uh, almost 9,000 feet up. Right? Correct. Uh, I believe it's right at around 8,800 feet. At that elevation, it gets quite cold, doesn't it? Yeah. And and that particular area to go from Ice House Saddle to Cucamonga Saddle uh, is uh, not exposed to the sun. So that snow stays uh, a little bit longer. The the south faces will melt, but um, the snow stays um, at that point in the hike. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and also important to remember here, Eric, you are no novice here at this point. You have what experience in terms of mountain climbing and, and survival? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I have a, a varied experience from just general navigation uh, skills through the military. I used to be in the Army. Um, we've also, uh, you know, done some excursions out in Alaska on glaciers, uh, where we would do some ice climbing, um, and then uh, general familiarity with our local mountains here. Like I said, we would try to get out and, and hike just about every weekend that we had available. Um, so I was fairly familiar with what we were we were getting into, or or thought we were getting into, at least in our planned uh, outing. <laughs> Uh, I didn't necessarily know what we were getting into with uh, once we went down into the canyon. Right. Okay. Take us back to Saturday, April 6th, 2019, uh, how the hike up to the peak um, found trouble. Sure. So right around uh, Cucamonga Saddle uh, is where you start your final ascent up some switchbacks to go to Cucamonga Peak. Uh, at that point, uh, the the snow was exposed to sun there, and it, it had, you know, thawed and then frozen, and it was very hard um, ice at that point. Uh, and at one point, uh, Gabrielle's crampon didn't bite into the ice, and she ended up falling uh, about 300 feet down towards Cucamonga Canyon. Uh, so that kind of triggered uh, our our mishap and and was what led to uh, being out there for so long. Mm-hmm. So you decided she had she had some injuries, not severe, yes. right? Yes. Uh, she had um, 
all the, the or the skin was ripped off the palm of her hands uh, from the fall, and then she also had a a puncture wound in her leg, either from a, a, an ice axe or a crampon. But they weren't life threatening, like you mentioned. Okay, so you have her with her injuries. You come to a, a point at the end of day one when you realize you have to spend the night. Uh, uh, describe the coming to that decision, why did you have to spend the night and where were you? Yeah, so we were um, we were fairly deep into Cucamonga Canyon at that point, and we had come to a drop that was about 10 feet or so, and the, the light was getting low from the sun setting. We couldn't really see uh, what our landing spot would be if we were to try to jump off of that ledge. And uh, we were worried that, you know, maybe we, we get injured from an uneven landing. So we decided it was best to uh, stay put there for the evening and uh, try when there, was, um, when there was light in the morning. All right. And you set up a camp, and you mentioned in the book here that you're aware there's a possibility of predators in the area. So what did that look like when you um, <laughs> made camp for the night? What were your concerns? Yeah, we, it wasn't much of a camp. It was just kind of a, a little sandy area that we laid down at. And um, we didn't know what was out there. Um, so we just, just in case, we would always prepare in the evening with our ice axes, you know, readily available in case something came by and got curious. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you just joined us, my guest this hour, uh, Eric DeSplinter, um, he was inspired to become a search and rescue volunteer after the story that we're listening to today. Karen Zebarth is his mother, resident of Adel, Iowa. The book, Two Trails, a hiker's story of survival and his mother's story of hope. And they're walking us through, um, as in the book here, their five days that they will certainly never forget. Let's go to day two. Uh, Eric, and this is at the end of this day is when Karen finds out because a search and rescue operation has been launched. So you wake up, this is um, uh, on what, Sunday, April 7th, 2019. You talk about in the book about uh, being really kind of dazed and confused because your compass is telling you one thing that doesn't match up with where you think you are or the directions that you have in mind. Yeah, so I was pretty sure that we were we were heading south towards the foothills uh, of the mountains, uh, which would be back towards home. And uh, that morning, we decided that we would just confirm that understanding by checking our compass direction. And, and I pulled out a compass and and shot it downstream, uh, and uh, it said that we were heading north, and that confused me. Um, I my first thought was, well, the compass has to be wrong. So I pulled out a second compass and shot it downstream, and that also said we were headed north. Um, and my my thought was, how could both compasses be incorrect? Because I was pretty sure we were going south. Mm-hmm. Um, but we ended up letting the the light come up over the canyon walls, and it confirmed that we were actually facing north. So that was a, a, a moment of confusion for sure. Um, and once we decided that, you know, the water course was headed north. 
we decided we'd walk back upstream and, and get back to the point that uh, that Gabrielle had initially fallen. Right. And, and Gabrielle, you two are together. And of course, we remember from before your other hiking mates, uh, they, they didn't have the necessary gear, the crampons to, to go further. So it's just the two of you. It is on day two, Eric. Uh, so, so they, so they would, people would have been notified that you were missing because you planned to have this just to be a day hike, right? So you know at this point, even though there's no cell coverage, that uh, people have been alerted. Did you think we weren't entirely sure, but we suspected that uh, somebody may have been alerted. Um, we didn't know what action Charles and Nicole would take when. Uh, we didn't show up that evening, uh, but there was a helicopter that flew over us on night one, and, and we thought there was a chance that they might be out there looking for us, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you had a mirror, you were able to, so you had some survival gear, you could try to signal them, and this is one of several times during these five days that you uh, spot a helicopter and you wonder, is the word out, are they looking for us, and so forth. So day two closes, um so you're confused. What do you end up doing on day two? Because you end up, what, hiking for quite a while and then recognizing shoe sort of footprints that turn out to be Gabrielle's, and which leads you to what conclusion? Yeah, as we were hiking back up and we saw her footprints and we, we checked our compass bearing again, uh, we found that as we were hiking back upstream, we were also hiking north. And so that did, that's obviously not possible to go downstream and be going north and upstream and going north. And so our theory was that we had been heading correct, the correct direction all day on day one. We truly were going south, um, but that the canyon uh, took a little bit of an S turn where we were and just flowed upstream for a uh, 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 the flowed to the north um, just for a short bit, um, and uh, that was uh, later confirmed uh, in our adventure. Mm-hmm. How many? How much uh, in terms of supplies, food did you have with you, um, the two of you, Eric? Yeah, at that point, uh, at the time of the fall, uh, we had between the two of us uh, two energy bars. <laughs> so you held out what turned out to be five days, and we'll walk through some of those other days on two energy bars, five days. Correct, yes. (laughs) Okay, wow. Okay, Um, Karen, let's pivot back to you before we go to our break here. Day two is when you find out the search and rescue operation has started, this text that you thought, is this a scam? And then you figure out it's not. Uh, What do you do after figuring out that the text is real, that your son, Eric, uh, is the subject of a search and rescue operation? Well, as soon as I figured out that that he was in trouble, I immediately knew that I had to get out there. So I had contacted my daughter who who arrived, and she helped kind of take control of things, and she secured airline tickets for me and my younger son, who uh, did go out there with me, and Nikki stayed back to kind of hold back the fort down here. And, Nikki uh, is your daughter. Nikki Tim is, is your other son. Yep. Correct. Okay. Correct. And um, so she helped pack and uh, got me in the car and went to pick up Tim. And she had us on an airplane by 3.30 that afternoon for a 3.30 flight. And we kind of got delayed on the way out there. Um, we went to Chicago and 
uh, ended up on the tarmac for a while, which is a little unnerving because we just wanted to get there. But we didn't arrive probably to LAX until about midnight and then back out to the rescue center about 2 a.m. Yeah, so it's an excruciating trip longer than you had hoped to get out to California. In your book, and I'd like you to share a little bit of this, Karen, describe the type of person Eric is and how that shaped the thoughts about uh, about what you were imagining might have happened to him. Well, Eric is, is extremely resourceful and um, very intelligent, and he's for him not to come back on a hike— we just knew that there had to be something terribly wrong because, you know, he would he would find a way out no matter what. And so we knew that there had to be something wrong. So, you know, by the by the first day, you know, we were concerned that, well, maybe he was he had to have been injured or something. But there had to have been something that was keeping him from us. Mm-hmm. And and you're thinking the worst here in some cases, because because, as you said, Eric is. Is, is a person who, who can get out of bad situations. Yes, he's, he's kind of the one in the family that, you know, if, if something, if we're in a predicament like that, you always want him with because he's always thinking 10 steps ahead and always has a plan. Mm. So that's, I think that's why it was most concerning for, of all people, for him not to return. Yeah. And, and Karen, tell us a little bit about that meeting, your first encounter with the search and rescue team. Well, when we arrived at the rescue center, there was um, nobody there, and it was our understanding that search and rescue was looking throughout the night, so we we weren't sure we were even in the right spot, but we thought we'd stay put until the sun came up, and shortly before the sun came up is when search and rescue started to arrive, and um, I immediately got out to try to get an update and make sure we were in the right spot, and we were, and, you know, we said we were good that Tim and I were going to go hike up to the saddle because we wanted to find out, you know, what, what was so, what kind of terrain was he on? What was he looking at? Because, you know, we've hiked together a lot mm-hmm. and we couldn't understand what could possibly have happened. So we hiked up to the saddle, but that's about as far as we got. And, um, but as, as rest, the saddle is at, uh- Eric, perhaps you can help here too, or, or Karen. The saddle is at what elevation? Because the the peak that you went, you were planning on going to, is nearly nine thousand feet. The saddle is how high up? Yeah, the Ice House saddle is at uh, seven thousand six hundred feet in elevation. Mm-hmm. But search and rescue, you know, as as they started to arrive, you know, they would arrive little by little, and it's amazing, you know, the relief that we felt just seeing these people arrive. And, you know, they were so organized in their in their rescue plans. You know, they had teams and assignments for each team to go and, and search. And it was that was probably the most comforting part to us at that point in the day. Right. So you were alarmed that there were no you couldn't find people at first. And then when they started to gather, uh, you were given some comfort to see how professionally uh, they worked, because, Karen, this is not an unusual experience, these search and rescue volunteers will learn they have to do this a number of times, right? A lot of people, well, a lot, a number of people get lost. Right. They they generally have searches out there quite often. They generally don't go this long. Um, most of the time, people are found um, in a short amount of time. Uh, Eric could probably ex- explain that a little bit you know, more since he's on search and rescue, but this is what uh, search and rescue have told me is that you know, people are usually found within that day or the day after. And this being lasting for five days was one of their 
larger rescues, and they had 16 teams out there looking for him. 16 teams, a total of about how many people? Oh, it varies. There's probably about uh, a dozen to 20 on each team, depending on, what, on which team you are. Wow. A lot of people looking. And um, Karen, talk a little, what did this, the head of the search and rescue teams uh, think of, of you going out there, getting a feel for the, the trailhead and, and hiking to a certain extent, the same trail that Eric had started on? Well, that was not their recommendation. They highly recommended that, that we not do that, but um, it was just something that Tim and I had to do. First of all, because you just we just kind of felt helpless. We were sitting there doing nothing, and we just wanted to get an idea of the terrain that he was on so that we could see, you know, hopefully, you know, give some input as to what might have happened. And they really didn't want us on the mountain, and the reason behind that being that they don't want to have, you know, they didn't know our skill level in hiking, had we ever done this before, and they don't want to have to take resources away from the search and rescue and send them up after Tim and I if we were to get in trouble on that hike. So that's very understandable on their part. Mm-hmm. But we, I, I as a mom, had to go, so I did. Mm-hmm. Eric, we're going to take a short break in just a moment, uh, and we're going to march on with the five-day ordeal being lost in the San Bernardino Mountains of Southern California. Before we go to break, uh, start us off with day three, Eric. What condition are you and Gabrielle physically by the start of day three? This would be um, April 8th, 2019, I believe. Yeah, at that point, we were pretty tired, uh, is not didn't have much energy my back had been uh hurt a bit uh and we were going to set out to go back downstream uh back through the canyon and decided that we would just stay uh put for the day try to rest and recover and hopefully search and rescue would just find us in place Okay, we're going to take a short break and be back with my guests, Eric DeSplinter, uh, now a search and rescue volunteer. This is part of what inspired him to do that. Karen Seabarth, his mother, resident of Adel, Iowa. Um, and uh, Karen has, uh, with Eric's writing help as well, his contributions uh, come out with a book, Two Trails, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about day three and the eventual survival. This is a hike to Cucamonga Peak in Southern California. Five days trying to make it out of the canyon. Eric and Gabrielle, his companion, um, each day presenting a new obstacle. As Eric mentioned, only two energy bars in hand. Limited food, water, clothing, uh, no equipment to navigate safely this canyon. Bitter weather. We'll hear about it, more of it, when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. 
Green thumbs, gardening novices, and plant lovers are all welcome. IPR's Garden Variety Newsletter brings the gardening community to your inbox. Subscribe today and join us at IPR.org slash GV. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. What a fascinating story today, a story of survival um, Karen Seabarth is with us. She's written a book. Uh, she's a resident of Adel, Iowa. It's a true account uh, of um, five days of survival. Eric DeSplinter joins us as well. Uh, her adult son, um, he's become a search and rescue volunteer. We'll hear uh, about that work today uh, a little bit later in the hour. Two Trails is the title of the book, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. And uh, both of you have contributed writing uh, to this uh, really interesting quick read. Um, But let's pick up with day three here. Uh, Eric, let's start on day three, the start of Monday, April 8th, 2019. Uh, Remind us where you are and what condition you and Gabrielle are in physically at the start of day three. Sure. So... We were uh, still in Cucamonga Canyon, uh, sort of hiked back up closer to where the initial fall occurred. Um, but at this point on day three, we had uh, regained our bearings and, and knew what direction uh, we needed to go, um, which would be downstream to the south. And uh, we just weren't in great physical condition at that point to be able to continue hiking. So we had just decided to uh, stay put for the day, let our bodies recover, and hope that search and rescue were able to find us in place. And as you bring out in the in the book, it's important you're thinking of how they're going to extract you, how they're going to find you. So you want to find your decision there to, to stay and wait for a rescue. Is that this is a, a place that's fairly good for a rescue, a helicopter? Is that your thinking then? Yeah, the the canyon was very wide at this point. There wasn't a whole lot of tree coverage, uh, so we were easily seen um, if, uh, or we thought we would be anyway, um, at least compared to being in something that is very narrow with a lot of tree canopy where a helicopter just can't see to the canyon floor. At least here, it would be possible for them to see us. And we could we could see for a long distance such that we could signal to the helicopter with our signal mirror uh, and hopefully get their attention. So what did what stands out in your memory about day three waiting for that rescue? Uh, during the day, I slept uh, a decent amount of it um, because it was kind of hard to sleep at night. Uh, but when the sun came out, I would lay on a rock uh, and just close my eyes. And uh, anytime I would hear a helicopter, I'd open my eyes and see if we could see anything. But it was really just a, a day of rest and recovery. Mm-hmm. How mu- how much of these two energy bars, that's all you had with you, are, are with you at this point? You were rationing them out, I imagine. Correct. We still hadn't eaten any either of them. So we still had two left on and, day three. And you hadn't eaten for two days? Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was Gabrielle doing at this point with her injuries from the fall? She was still doing pretty good. Um, they, they didn't seem to be uh, affecting her mobility. Um, I was probably less mobile than her at that point after taking a fall on my back, uh, either on day one or day two. I don't remember when that was. But Yeah, yeah you described that fall because you fell backwards, and we can all picture this, uh, the, the logs laying on the ground, fallen trees. You fell, and it 
with your back directly on a log? Correct. Yeah, my, my back wasn't feeling great going into the hike. And then uh, there was a point where I had slipped on a log and just fell flat on my back and, and the log was in the small of my back. Mm. Karen, tell us, let's pivot back to your experience on day three, the first full day. I think you're with the, the rescue, search and rescue team. What did you know at this point on day three about their possible whereabouts? What were the questions? They'd not been located yet, right? They'd not been located. They had found several clues. Um, and at the end of every day, they would you know, bring us in and they would brief us as to where they had searched. And they would have these clues that they had found. I think there was a set of trekking poles and they asked if they were Eric's and uh, there was a hat that they had found and things like that, but nothing matched up to them. Um, so it was just a matter of going in and showing us where they had searched and what the plans were for the next day. They did a very nice job of keeping us informed. This gained some widespread media attention. As you mentioned before, the people get lost in these mountains, but usually the search and rescue takes, they're recovered within a day or two. Um, so with the the time that had passed and, and no recovery yet made, uh, what kind of media were showing up? This is nation had ca- captured na- national attention. Correct, correct. Yeah, there there were media trucks up and down the roads of the, the road, I should say, of Mount Baldy. Um, Mount Baldy is very small, and they pretty much lined the street. There were several several news stations. And uh, there were some that, you know, wanted to talk to us and that just didn't feel right to us at the time. Um, We wanted to keep the focus on, you know, the rescuers and Eric and Gabrielle. So rather than talking to us and so so for the most part, we we didn't really do a lot of interviews and things like that. But they but they still kept the story alive, Mm -hmm. which was nice because that kept rescuers, you know, coming back out to help search for them. Right. In this book, Karen, I think it's interesting that you have some nuance here about how you felt towards the the search and rescue team. It's clear that you're so grateful, and uh, you have a whole chapter at the end of the book dedicated to to thanking these teams and these people. But it it wasn't that way the whole time, I gather, from the book. There's some tension there. There were times you didn't understand or agree with their approach. Talk a little bit about your mixed feelings— on how best to proceed, uh, you know, during this search. I think that, you know, as as the mom, you, you want to do something. And as, you know, Tim being his brother, we want to do something. We just couldn't do anything. And I think that's where the frustration probably came from mm-hmm. because we, we just had nothing to offer. And we wanted, you know, we wanted the focus to be closer to where this boxed area was or down this side of the canyon. And... um you know, we we weren't the ones in charge of the operation, and we needed to we needed to, like I said, stay in our lane and let them do their job because they didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, Karen Zebarth is with us this hour, author of Two Trails: A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. Also, Eric the Splinter, uh, Karen's adult uh, son. Um, uh, Karen's uh, a resident of Adel, Iowa. Fascinating day. Uh, a fascinating drama through five days of of survival in Southern California mountains. Eric, take us to your experience on day four. This is interesting. When you, 
found yourselves trapped below a ledge. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm trying to picture it stuck below a natural water slide, but above a waterfall that was a hundred foot tall. Yeah, we had made the determination that we were we were going to go downstream, and at one point the canyon uh, starts to choke down and get pretty narrow uh, to where the water kind of uh, makes the rock smooth. Um, and there's about a 15-foot slide uh, that you can sit down, and, and just like you're going down a water slide at a theme park. Um, and then at the bottom of that slide, there's a, a short flat area uh, right before a, a very tall waterfall, which appeared to be a uh, hundred foot uh, once we walked up to it. Um, and I believe it's only uh, 80 or so, um, but it's nevertheless a, a very long drop there. And so we felt like we were trapped between a, a tall waterfall and not being able to walk back up that slide with a, a smooth surface and a strong current pushing us back down. Uh, we felt like we were trapped at that point. Mm -hmm. And was this a low point in, in your thoughts about survival? You write in the book, at this point, I figured the probability of death was pretty high. What was going through your mind? Yes, this was uh, where I thought w we would likely die. And um, my my head literally started to spin in my, in my mind. Um, I was looking around for other ways to get out of the area that we were. Um, but my vision was kind of blurry. Um, and there was just a lot going on, uh, all at once. And it was kind of overwhelming. It was hard to think clearly at that point. Yeah. So you had to stay what, what you describe as just a horrible night. You're, uh, camping with a fire on a ledge, trapped. And you write in the book, you didn't sleep a moment. Tell us about that night. Yeah, it was uh, just brutally cold. Um, at this point, our emergency blanket that we had um, was ripped to pieces and not really very effective. So we were really reliant on the clothes that we had brought with us, which weren't um, for an overnight stay. But the temperature had dropped very cold. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but I'm sure it was below freezing. And the wind was howling uh, such that we couldn't have a fire that night. It was We tried, but the embers were blowing all over the place. Uh, so it was just a frigid night, and we were sleeping on sharp rocks, which were putting pressure points all over our bodies and bruising our body. Um, it was about as uncomfortable as it could get for us. Mm -hmm. Day four for you, Karen, pivoting back to you, wondering where your son Eric is. Um, uh, in this chapter of the book, uh, I think it's so touching um, and also really explains your state of mind a bit. Uh, you recall the loss of a daughter to leukemia and um, recall that in, in this context when you don't know uh, what this where where your son is if he'll survive at all so a day of lot of a lot of praying you write about in this book yeah day 4 was that was the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and the fact that you know anytime we saw a search and rescue it was a high for us and just relieved a lot of pressure 
and a lot of the other things that helped was Eric's uh, coworkers would come out and they would talk to us. So, you know, those times were just, you know, talking about Eric and Gabrielle and um, good times just and a lot of laughter. So there was a lot of up and down, and, and I think that was the day that, you know, I, I probably was thinking he he probably wasn't alive anymore because he would have got back to us. And um, so kind of planning how do we take things into the future? How do we plan future for the rest of the family if he's not here with us anymore? It got extremely, extremely cold, and I and I vividly remember the, the clouds just sinking to, on the mountaintops, and it just looked like it swallowed them up. And it got very, very cold and windy very quickly. And um, that was just very, very difficult. And then they came out after that from the command post to kind of give us a recap of the day. And they had found nothing. Mm. They had found nothing. And that was just, that was probably the lowest point for me. Okay. Let's move past the lowest point because there is a, Happy end to this story. Uh, What an ending here. Let's move to day five of this five-day ordeal, Um, April 10th, 2019. Eric, tell us how you woke up on day five and the terrain that you were negotiating there. Yeah, when we woke up, our our bodies were shaking uncontrollably um, from the cold, and we had to down-climb. Uh, an exposed face to uh, get back to the canyon floor to where we could get some water uh, and continue downstream through the canyon. Uh, So we waited for the sun to come up and warm our bodies so that we could control uh, our movements for the down climb. And at this point, we also decided to split one of those uh, remaining two energy bars so that we could have some energy for the down climb. Uh, but we did get down to the canyon floor uh, and got down to uh, some water, and drinking that water also helped to rejuvenate us quite a bit. So you're very resourceful on day five because you've got to get yourself down, but you don't have any ropes. So what did you do, Eric? Yeah, we came to another waterfall, uh, which was about 30 feet tall, and uh, we had found some webbing that was around a couple of trees in this area. And we decided to take, cut those pieces of webbing off and tie them together around a tree that was up to the left side of the canyon. And then we used our jackets that we had to extend that uh, rope down uh, to the canyon floor. And we used that combination of webbing and jackets tied together as a hand line to lower ourselves down uh, to the canyon floor and get past that waterfall. Mm-hmm. Our time is running short. There's so many details that we're having to skip over. It's really a great uh, read. If you've just joined us, uh, the book is Two Trails, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. Uh, Karen Z. Barth, the author, mother, resident of Adel. Eric DeSplinter, um, the uh, son, adult son, who uh, was lost for fo- five days, the subject of a um, search and rescue team, along with his uh, hiking mate, uh, Gabrielle. Let's let's get to the rescue because we're all waiting for it. Eric, how did it finally end? Yeah, we were laying down uh, prepping our camp for night five, and uh, we had heard a helicopter coming from downstream in the canyon. And when we looked down there, 
we saw a helicopter. So we immediately jumped up and started signaling to it with everything that we could. Um, I had a chem light that was tied to some Coban uh, and I cracked that chem light, started spinning it and we did everything we could to get their attention. And this time they actually saw us. Uh, they started talking to us through their uh, speakerphone on the helicopter and we knew that they had our location at that point. And what's really harrowing is describe the scene of the two of you being hoisted into, it was a hovering helicopter, but hovering between very narrow canyon walls. Yes, because we were sort of stuck between the waterfall that we had just passed and another obstacle, another drop, um, the helicopter had to come down and set the rescuer right on top of our campsite, uh, which was a narrow part of the canyon. And, and so the helicopter pilot um, had some impressive flying to be able to hover over us in the canyon without, uh, without crashing the helicopter. So they had a mechanical hoist one by one. You were pulled, hoisted into this helicopter midair. Exactly. They lowered a cable down with the rescuer, and that rescuer uh, put us in what they call a screamer suit, uh, which is just a little harness. And then once we're once uh, one by one, they they raise us up in this harness uh, on that cable into the helicopter. Amazing. Oh, and your feeling, your thoughts at that time, Eric? Well, definitely elation that we were finally found. But I really enjoyed the the ride. Uh, in the screamer suit up into the helicopter. It was beautiful <laughs> to be able to see out for so far and uh, see the city lights in the distance. It was it was a pleasant uh, ride up into the helicopter. Day five for you, Karen. Then comes the joy of discovering Eric is alive and he's well, along with Gabrielle. Uh, we don't have much time, but tell us how you found out uh, Eric had been rescued and and your meeting again? Well, my son had come around the corner to tell me that they had found some um, evidence. So I came around front and they told me that they had found footprints and that it was confirmed that it was actually them that was found. And I didn't believe them at first. I kept questioning, you know, are you sure? And they would tell me yes. And I said, no, but really sure. Because <laughs> it was just hard to believe that after that many days, it was finally over and I just wanted to be positive. And so that's how I found out. And my daughter was on a plane out there um, on her way out, and she had a layover in Phoenix. And she had had looked at the news, and they said um, rescuers or hikers found. And but it didn't say whether they were found dead or alive. So she she was in limbo because you know cell reception was very difficult. So she didn't get that confirmed until she actually landed in Ontario. But then once we once she got up to the mountain, you know, every we knew that Eric was alive and they were coming back. And it was probably a couple hours before we got to see him after that. Mm, what a joyous reunion. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a few tears were shed, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to finish perhaps with you, Eric, or at least include this. You are now a search and rescue volunteer. How is this tied to what we just heard you experience? Yeah, so the the rescue teams had left my pack out in Cucamonga Canyon uh, when they rescued us. Um, I had some ice axes strapped to the outside, and they had determined that it wasn't safe to bring that up into the helicopter. Uh, so I 
was determined to get back out there to get all my personal belongings back. And in that uh, effort, I ran to um, a local canyoneer, Willie Hunt, and he introduced me to another canyoneer, Sonny Lawrence, um, who's on the cave uh, technical rescue team out here in San Bernardino County. And uh, the three of us went back through the canyon to get my gear. And in that um, outing, I had talked with Sonny about his experiences on search and rescue. And uh, that led to me applying to join the cave team. Well, we've run out of time. What a fascinating story. Eric DeSplinter, thank you for joining us. Now a search and rescue volunteer of uh, uh, several years, as we've heard. Karen Zebarth, a resident of Adel, Iowa, Eric's mom. The book, Two Trails, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. Let me ask you quickly before we go, Karen, how did this all change you as a person and your relationship with your family? I don't know if it changed me. It reminded me, and because I think sometimes we get all very busy with our lives and focus too much on work and things that don't matter. It reminded me to come back and be grounded in the most important thing in my life, and that's my family. Mm-hmm. Eric, how did it change you? Obviously, you've got a new calling. How else? Yeah, I feel like uh, I didn't realize how much stress something like this would put my family through. I take extra steps to make sure that I'm in communication such that um, I don't uh, I don't leave them hanging and wondering so that they don't have to go through something like that again. Okay. I want to thank you very much for spending the hour with us, Eric DeSplinter and Karen Zebarth. Thank you so much, and uh, great that you have each other and the rest of your family. What a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. The book is Two Trails, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. Today's program produced by Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. This season, Garden Variety wants to help you flourish. Each week, our favorite horticulturists drop by with fresh tips. Subscribe and dig in. Head to ipr.org garden or find Garden Variety wherever you get your podcasts.